You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. My name is Pat Gillis, and uh, this is my wife, Juanita. And we've been married how many years, Juanita? 38. Almost. We were living in Markham for about 10 years, and I really am a city boy at heart. I grew up in the city, loved the city. It took about a year and a half for me to talk Juanita into coming down yeah. to the Danforth. Yeah, it took me about a year to get used to all of the commotion and noise and everything, but the cafes, you can walk everywhere, drugstore, restaurant, grocery store, it's amazing. They always have different festivals, concerts, yeah. parades. I mean, there's always something happening in yeah. this neighborhood. Yeah, uh, you know, we really love, uh, we, we enjoy having friends over. We enjoy entertaining and it's just a fun place to be. And then we'll walk out for ice cream or uh, coffee afterwards because it's so close by. evening uh, we came home about 15 minutes before it all happened we're going in the house unloading the car went in the house but I stayed outside to do some watering in the garden and that and then I started hearing shots but I'm like is that a gun no not not in the Danny not here and I thought oh my gosh what's going on so I went in the house so I turned on City Pulse and of course it was unfolding It was so intentional uh, what happened that it was shocking and hurtful that someone would do that to innocent people. We we couldn't even go to bed that night because our minds were racing and we were in shock, I think. The first day after the shooting, uh, the street was still closed. And then there was a big board. We all just started signing it. Um, Our condolences to the families. Um, You know, talking to neighbors and, and just people were distraught and they were upset. In fact, I called Jonathan the the next day and I said, you know, I don't know what to do, but I feel like we want to do something. So we just were talking. We we thought, let's um, have some uh, neighbors over and and just um, support each other and just be together. So we thought, you know what, let's do a handwritten invitation. Just knock on the door, ring the bell. Everyone received them with thanks. Mm -hmm. And then we just let go and let God. At first we were just in the kitchen and then people started coming to the front door. And then as more people came, we came into the backyard and as neighbors came in, we talked about where we were and what we thought and what we heard. And And the whole night wasn't just about the tragedy. There was laughing, there was a little bit of sadness here and there, but I think it was a good healing part too. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to be a friend. We wanted to be a neighbor. And uh, that's where you start relationships. And relationships can then lead into, you know, whether it's about your faith or it's about your business or it's about your family. I think people want to be heard. And uh, one of the biggest things that we can do is not just talk, but to listen. We all feel the same pain and sorrow. And uh, they want to unload it. Sometimes they don't know how to unload it. Mm-hmm. And it could be something just as simple as maybe having a cup of tea with a person. 
um, maybe not even talking about it, but just someone's beside you. You know, it takes time to gain trust and it takes time to grow a friendship. And that's in any community or neighborhood. So it's just one step closer to being a friend and being a neighbor. Meet people where they are at. Don't wait for them to be perfect or friendly. You take that step. If you've watched the news at all over these last few months, you will know that in the city of Toronto, we have just seen a lot of gun violence, a lot of knife and fatalities, uh, knife stabbings and abuse and uh, some really just bad things happening in our city. The politicians have been coming out and saying that uh, we need to uh, step up gun control and we need to put more police officers on the street and we need more social workers and we meet, need more intervention programs. And I think that all of that is true. We do need all that stuff. But what we don't hear from politicians, something that I believe very strongly is that we also need our communities to know about the love of Jesus Christ. And we all live within communities that need that. They need to know a real authentic love, that love that is patient, is kind, that love that uh, doesn't hold grudges, it doesn't want what it doesn't have, and it, it doesn't strut, it doesn't uh, abuse, it doesn't uh, put others down, but it's a love that's genuine and it's real. And I really believe that is exactly what Toronto needs right now. Do you agree with me? I love this story. When I first heard Pat and Winita tell this story, I thought that's exactly what community groups is all about. It's about inviting your neighbors. It's about inviting your friends. It's about inviting coworkers. Maybe even more so, it's about inviting those who are hurting and lonely, those who are uh, in uh, uh, despair, difficult situations. They feel lost. They feel broken. And you're inviting them into your everyday space. We all have everyday space whether it's your home or work or somewhere else, but you have a space somewhere that you occupy and all community groups is, is inviting someone into that space to begin to have a meaningful conversation with them about this incredible, amazing person that we follow by the name of Jesus Christ who makes all the difference in the world. And taking the love of Jesus to the front lines of the communities that we live in and impacting our city for God with this unstoppable force that humanity uh, needs to see and needs to know. It's that unstoppable force that changes the hardest of hearts and transforms the most difficult of lives. That's what Toronto needs. I believe that, friends. I really do. And we want you to become a part of that. We want you to actually become a community group leader because we have this mandate. God has given it to us and we need to take it and run with it and go with it and become a leader, inviting someone into our, our community. And you might say, well, I can't do that. I'm not good at those kind of things. I actually want to speak to the men in the room. Can I just say this to all the gentlemen? You know, put your hand up if you're a man, all right? Just, just so I, you know, we make sure we got that. You know, this morning, I sat in Tim Hortons, waiting for Tim Hortons to put together coffee and donuts for me so that I could take them to our volunteers at our Claire Lee campus, and because and, they have to be there for 7.30, 8 o'clock to set up, and so taking them coffee and donuts. But as I was sitting there waiting for it to be made, I listened to five men sit around a table and talk about nothing, literally. It was like a 10-minute conversation of nothing. 
And I thought to myself, come on, gentlemen, we could do this. We could sit around the table and talk about the most amazing and incredible person that can change this city and change this community and change this world. We could start that conversation, men. We could do that, couldn't we? Ladies, we could do that too, couldn't we? Ladies sometimes do it a little easier than men, but we can do this. So I want you to do something for me. Take out your phone, because you all have one. I know. Don't pretend you don't, all right? You can do this right now while I'm talking. I don't mind that you're on your phone, okay? But take your phone out. Go to whatever search engine that you use and search onechurch.to slash groups. I don't want you to join a group. I want you to become the group. I want you to be the leader. And I want you to sign up to be a leader. And you don't have to be a priest or a pastor. You don't have to have any special training to do this. I just want you to be willing to say, I want to make a difference in my city. And as I make that difference, we're going to help you with everything else. We'll give you the resources that you need. We'll give you the support that you need. But you need to sign up. And if you would do that, it's just that simple. And we can truly make a difference for the kingdom of God in the city. Do you agree with me? Good morning, One Church. It's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here and that you're with us today. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Maybe it has. I was walking into a place to get my hair cut not too long ago, and I walked into the shop, and a lady comes up to me, and she says to me, you remind me of someone. Has that ever happened to you? She says to me, you remind me of someone, and, and she goes, I can't really think of who it is, so I thought I would help her out a little bit, and I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty good looking. Perhaps I remind you of this person right here, George Clooney. She said, no. I said, well, you know what? When I was younger, sometimes people would say that I kind of looked a little bit like Jerry Seinfeld. She goes, no, that's not it. And I said, well, then it's obvious, isn't it? Dark hair, chiseled looks, muscular body. Obviously, you are mistaking me for Hugh Jackman. I mean, obviously, right? What? She looks at me and she goes, I hope you're not offended. <laughs> Folks, whenever someone says to you, I hope you're not offended, you just need to know you're probably going to be offended. You might as well just get out of there. But she looked at me and she said, I hope you're not offended, but you kind of remind me of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> and I went, who is Jerry Lewis? She goes, you know, Jerry Lewis, the actor, Jerry Lewis. I have no idea who he is, so I Googled him, and this is what I got. <laughs> and I went, seriously? <sighs> I've come to realize that identity is very important to all of us. How we see ourselves how others see us, how we are portrayed on social media. We hold high value to these things. I've often wondered about the Apostle Paul. I've often wondered if maybe he had some identity issues. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which was a Roman city. And because he was born there, that made him a Roman citizen. But he was born to a Jewish family, and so he had a Hebrew name, and his Hebrew name was, his birth name was actually Saul. 
But as we get to know him later on in life, he was, we know him from his Greek name, which is Paul. He was a Roman citizen, born with a Jewish name, Saul, but we know him as Paul. And I wonder if that gave him some identity issues. He was born to a Jewish family, which meant that he was raised in the strictest of Orthodox Judaism. He was born in Tarsus, and Tarsus was known as a university town, and, and it housed the highest-ranking university of the known world at that time, higher than Athens, higher than Alexandria. And so Saul was educated not only as a strict uh, Orthodox Jew, but he was also given the best university education that the world had to offer. That meant that Paul was also coming from a world of privilege, of money, of wealth, and of prestige. Saul's social life was in a category that few men could ever afford. He would have been the man who was driving the Maserati chariots and the Lamborghini horses. This was the life of Paul. But history also tells us that Saul may not have been um, as physically appealing as we may have thought. In fact, history sort of tells us that he was probably short and bald, and walked bow-legged, and had meeting eyebrows, and a big red hooked nose. I think that if looks were an issue, possibly Saul may have had some identity issues. But something happened in Saul's life. Something happened that changed him. There are two significant time periods in Saul's life that are mentioned in the book of Acts. And the first mention of Saul is in Acts chapter 7. And Saul is a young man. And he meets another young man by the name of Stephen. And in Acts chapter 6, it tells us that Stephen was a man that was full of God's grace and power. And he performed amazing miracles and signs amongst people. But there were certain religious fanatics and people that didn't really like Stephen. They, they were kind of jealous of him and had some issues with him. And they decided to begin to spread lies about Stephen. Kind of like what happens in our social media sometimes where a lie is kind of spread around and, and it hurts individuals. And so Stephen was being lied about and that meant that the religious police Police had to come and arrest him, and they did, and they took him before a religious court, and he was forced to defend himself. And in his defense, Stephen retold the history of God's faithfulness to God's own people and how those people rebelled against God, rejected him, and disobeyed him. And then Stephen went on to do something that probably wasn't a good idea, but he accused them of killing all of God's messengers, including the Messiah. And Acts reports that his accusers put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. And they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And as they were doing this, they took their jackets off and they laid them at the feet of, you know who he is, Saul. And they laid it at the feet of Saul. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul was an eyewitness and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. 
And what that word, that original Greek word means for that statement, agreed completely, it means that Saul actually took pleasure in watching Stephen be stoned to death. He was actually gratified. There was something gratifying in Saul to watch this man be mercilessly destroyed and killed. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, it says that a great wave of persecution began that day throughout the city of Jerusalem, sweeping the church. And it was led by this person, Saul. That was Paul's life as Saul. That's the first significant moment. Here's the second significant moment in Saul's life. You find it in Acts chapter 9. And a major change happens in his life. In verse 3 and 4, that while Paul was approaching Damascus on this mission, which was to kill Christians, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul later on will go on to describe this life-changing moment in Acts chapter 26. And he says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus of Nazareth. And indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. I was authorized by the leading priests. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them into foreign cities. But one day, I was on such a mission to Damascus, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Saul actually believed that what he was doing was right. He actually believed that, that everything was good. His life was good. There was no need to change anything. There was nothing wrong with him. He was living life, and he was doing what it is that he wanted to do. One commentator notes this, that Saul believed himself to be serving the Lord God of Israel when he persecuted the disciples of Jesus. His service had become an obsession. And even though he was wrong, he thought he was actually doing what God wanted him to do. And yet in that moment when God spoke to Saul, everything changed. Who he was, what he was, what he believed changed. Saul's identity completely changed. That definition of the word identity, it means a distinctive character belonging to an individual. In other words, your, in, your identity is the bits and pieces of what distinguishes you as a person. And the bits and pieces of Saul's identity distinguished him as an evil man, someone who actually took pleasure in watching others be in pain and suffering and being stoned to death. But his encounter with God on the road to Damascus was a changing moment. It changed his bits and pieces. It changed his identity. I think that there are four ways 
in which we in North America actually identify ourselves. I think we have four identities that we often live our lives around. The first one is our cultural identity. We love to identify ourselves based on where we have been born, where we come from. If you were born in Toronto, I'm from Toronto. I'm Torontonian, I'm from Ontario, I'm from Canada, I'm Canadian. Or if you come from another part of the world, there's, there's an identity that we want to, to be identified with, a culture that we want to identify ourselves with. There's economic identity. We identify ourselves by what we drive, where we live, what we wear, how we look. There's religious identity, what we believe about spiritual things, sexual identity. Saul's identity was formed around those four areas. His cultural background, his economic status, his religious fervor, his sexual individuality. He identified with those things. He actually wrote about it and said, this was my life. These are the things that I have done. But we see evidence of change in Saul's life later on. Philippians chapter 1, this is what he says. He says, I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die, for me to live is Christ. Can you say that with me this morning? For me to live is Christ. Saul's identity is now Christ. Who he is, what he is, what he believes is Christ. Notice what he doesn't say in this. Notice that he doesn't say, for me to live is also being a Roman, or being Greek, or being a Hebrew. Notice that he doesn't say, for me to live is a 3,000 square foot home in the city of Toronto. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, for me to live is a new religion. He doesn't say, for me to live is now a sexual preference. Perhaps Saul would have said that at some point in his time, but now as Paul, he says, for me to live is Christ. Six words. There's actually three statements in these six words. For me to live is Christ, and it defines what a changed identity means. And this morning, I want to take a moment with you to look at these three statements. The first one is this, for me. For Paul, this statement is a personal statement. But we've got to understand something here, that this is not a personal statement of Paul. In other words, Paul is not expressing a segment out of his own personal journal. This is not Paul Facebooking uh, how he's feeling today and what's going on in his life in this moment. This statement that he makes, for me, it is intentionally placed in a position within the sentence to draw our attention to the significance of what it is that he is saying. This is a very personal thing for Paul, for me, for me to live as Christ. But sometimes when we read this statement, we make a mistake with it. We read it and we want to put a comma right after that word, me. And we want to say, for me, pause, to live is Christ. We want to pause as if it's something that means something to just us. But for Paul, that's not what he's saying. This is not an, an exclusive statement. Paul's life is not being lived uh, in solitude or quietness. And he's saying, you know, for me, this is how I live, quietly, alone. 
This is my private belief. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that he's living this, this statement for me to live as Christ through somebody else or that, you know, this was my parents' religion, this is what I do. He's not saying that. He is saying that for me, in the depths of my soul and the core of my very being, regardless of what someone else may say or how someone else may live their life, regardless of what my friends are doing, regardless of what those around me choose to do, regardless of what society, social media, or news reports may say I, of how I should live my life, for me, what is real and authentic and genuine in my life for me to live is Christ. And there's two things that are happening in this. This statement moves Paul away from his past experience. All of that stuff, all of that behavior, all of the shortcomings, all of the, the, the stuff that he knew he was guilty of, it moves him away from his past. In fact, it even moves him away from his present reality. And it moves him towards what is the purpose of why his life exists. He exists for one thing, for me to live is Christ. But here's the second thing in, that happens here. First, it moves him away from his past. But secondly, this statement is a comprehensive statement. He's not saying this just for himself. This is not Paul going, this is for me, but you don't have to worry about it. He is saying that, this is for me, it's for you, it's for all of us. He brings us into the statement. And he is saying that for you, for me, for all of us to live is Christ. That's the first part of that statement. Here's the second part. For me to live means it's a new identity. It's like changing your profile on Instagram or Snapchat if Paul had an Instagram, Snapchat account, he would change his profile to say, from Christian killer to now a Christ follower. This meant that his identity changed from being that person who was uttering threats and torturing people and abusing people. And he went from that to talking about Jesus, preaching about him in public places. He even became a prisoner. What he did to others now is being done to him. And yet even in the midst of that, he's still talking about Jesus. He's preaching. Even as a common laborer going about his day, he would talk about Jesus. And these two words, to live, reveal the true nature of our identity. Why don't you take a moment, think about this for a second. If you had to fill in the blank, for me to live is, and fill in the blank, what would you say? What is it that makes you alive? What is it that eclipses your life, that drives you forward? every day. Is it a boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, work, career, food, like Pastor Gord said a moment ago, eating? Is it shopping? What is it? What is it that drives you? What Paul means when he says to live means that he's not just filling space. He's not just going through the motions of living life. He's not just, you know, mechanically just, you know, putting it all out there and just trying to hack out a day-to-day -day existence. That's not what Paul is saying here. He is saying that his everyday 24-7 life was fully alive in Christ, not in his 
cultural identity, not in his economic identity, not in his religious identity or his sexual identity. Those things did not give him life. What made him alive and made him living was Christ. For me to live, to be alive, to breathe, meant that Paul, for, for Paul, this meant that he gave everything of who he was to Jesus. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, he put it all to Jesus and he gave it to him. And in return, what he got was that he got all of Christ, the fullness of Christ in himself. Everything that he thought he might have lost, he gained much more because he became alive. So that's the second statement. Here's the third statement. For me to live is Christ. You know that word is? When Paul wrote this in the original language, he actually never wrote that word. He never wrote is. In fact, what he said is, for me to live Christ. For me to live Christ. It was a blunt statement. It was a direct statement. Because what he really wanted to say, what the point that he was trying to make is, for you to have a real, authentic, genuine life, it cannot be found in any other place but Christ. If we look for it culturally or in economics or religion or sexuality, we're going to be disappointed. In fact, this is what he says in verse 7. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. Sometimes, folks, that's a hard thing to do. But it's true. He says, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could, say this with me, gain Christ. You see, a real, authentic, genuine life is Christ. My whole life is Christ. The sum of everything that I am is Christ. There is nothing in my life that is outside of living for Christ. Everything in my life is under the lordship of Christ. Christ is the very essence of my being. That's what Paul is saying here. And that is the deepest reality of his soul. But in the English language, we have to put the word is in order for it to make sense for us. But by putting that word is into the statement, we are actually capturing what it is that he was really trying to say. For me to live is Christ is really a statement. That word is brings that statement into the present, into the moment. It is for you. It is for me. It means that our, that our lives are no longer what was, but now is what is. It's active. It's ongoing. It's life change that's occurring every day. There's nothing magical about this. But we are now awake and alive in Christ. And, and we begin to become more like the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Something, sometimes we, we draw this conclusion and we say, well, you know what? I've done the salvation thing. And I've done the water baptism thing. It's like this little box in our spiritual journey that we just check these things off and we say, well, I've done all of that. What do I need to do next? But for Paul, that's not what it meant. For Paul, it meant for you to live, 
for you to get up in the morning, for you to have purpose, for you to have hope, for you to breathe is Christ. It means that the old identities, you don't have to hold on to them anymore. They don't need to be a part of your life. You don't need to hold on to them. They are now dead. Let them die. Because now there is a new identity that you have who is Christ. Say this with me. For me to live is Christ. We're going to go to communion in a couple of moments. And that's really what communion is all about. It's about this one statement. If you're a server and you're going to help us with communion, I would encourage you to head on out to do that because we're going to begin that in just a moment. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm a hockey fan, except now that I just told you, you now know that, right? <laughs> I'm a hockey fan. Any hockey fans in the room? Anybody here who's a hockey fan? The problem with me telling you that I'm a hockey fan is that you have no idea who I'm a fan of, right? I could be a Montreal Canadiens fan. I could be a Vancouver Canucks fan or a Boston Bruins fan. You don't know unless I show you this, which tells you who my... <laughs> Do you know that in all the gatherings, you're the only one who clapped when I pulled this out? But when I put this on and I began to wear this, there is no question of whether or not I am a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what I do. I am a Maple Leafs fan because I have the jersey on. I could go to Montreal. I'm not going to change my jersey for a Montreal Canadiens jersey because I'm not a fan of Montreal. I'm a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So if I go to Montreal, I might actually get hurt. <laughs> but that's okay because I am a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I could go to Vancouver. I could go to Boston. And the fans there may not appreciate that I am wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey but I'm wearing it, I live in it, I breathe in it, I celebrate in it, I suffer in it. It's going to come, folks. Nobody questions me whether or not I am a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs when I am in the jersey. No one says to me, you know what, you're not really a fan. I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I, you know, I'm not convinced that you're a fan. No one ever says that to me when I'm wearing the jersey. Everyone knows. No one says to me that if I didn't show up on Saturday night to the Maple Leafs game downtown, that, that the next day they're not going to come up to me and try to rip the jersey off of me and say, you're not a, you're not a fan. You're not really a, a, a person who loves the Leafs. You weren't at the game last night. No one ever challenges me on that. Because when I'm in the jersey, I am living and breathing and functioning in the jersey. And everybody knows. You see, the jersey moment of a Christ follower is water baptism. Water baptism is a public, outward declaration of this statement that we've looked at this morning. For me to live is Christ. It's a new identity. The old one is done and gone. 
The, the failures, the hopelessness, the lifelessness, it's over with. Water baptism is the physical demonstration of the old identity being put to death and buried in a grave of water so that we never have to go back to it again. And just like Jesus died in a grave of death and then was resurrected out of that grave alive, when we come out of that grave of water, we are alive. Not because of something that I've done, It's not because of anything that I've accomplished, but I'm alive because Jesus is alive in me. Water baptism is the demonstration of a new identity for me. And it is the declaration to live, to be alive, to breathe, and to know that I am no longer dead inside, but I'm alive. And water baptism is the determination for me to live is Christ. Here's what water baptism is not. It's not joining a new religion. It's not a rite of passage. It's not salvation. Somebody dunking you underwater is not going to guarantee uh, an eternal salvation. It's not joining a church. It's not about making you a good person. It's not a graduation. It's a new identity. The old identity is gone. And we are publicly putting on the jersey and saying, my life is now in Jesus Christ. My life is in him. And there's no question about it. There will be no confusion of where my identities lie. My identity is Christ and Christ alone. On October 21 and 22, we want to have a baptismal service. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never actually taken that step. You would say to me, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But then if you've never been baptized, I would ask you, but why not? Why not take the next step? You don't have to be perfect. No one expects that. This is a journey that we are on, and there are aspects of our lives that will change as we move forward and as we grow. But by making that public statement, it's like having a Jersey moment that is saying, I am telling the world my old life, my old behaviors, whatever my past is, it's done and gone. I have a new life, a new beginning, a new hope. My life is now in Jesus Christ. We want to help you with those steps. October 10 is a Wednesday night, and we want to have a class for you one that can help you to take that next step to discover a little bit more of what water baptism means. And if you're not sure how to do that in the foyer, you will see that that we have a guest services there. Just stop by there and say to one of the folks that are there, I want to be baptized. I just need to know what the next step is. They will help you. They will get you into that next place that you need to go to be able to take that step. Perhaps you're here this morning, though, And you would say to me, I'm tired of my old identity. I would really like to have a new one. I would like a new beginning. I want to pray with you. And I want you to take a moment to pray too. Because it's not a ritual. It's not anything complicated or difficult. 
But it's really just a moment of you talking to God and saying, I need you to change my identity. I need you to make me alive. And you can do that in the quietness of this moment. Even right now, God is here in this room. By his presence, he is here. He can hear you. He can hear your thoughts. He can hear your prayers. And all you need to say is say, Jesus, make me new. Give me that new identity. I want to start over again. And by simply doing that, it means that your old identity is gone. Your new begins right now. Can I pray for you? Will you let me pray for you? Jesus, you know every one of our hearts and every one of our lives. There's, enough, there's nothing in our lives that is a surprise to you. There's nothing that you are not aware of. You know our lives inside and out. But you love us and you are gracious and you are kind. And when we come to you and we say, change our identity, let us have a new beginning. You are faithful and kind, and you do that. You give us that new start. And I pray that each of us in this room, if we are not there, that we would, right now in this moment, give our lives totally 100% to you so that we can have 100% of you in us. In your name I pray. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.